Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. But first, let us pray. <clears throat> Merciful God, keep us steadfast in your word so that we may be strengthened to resist the tempter. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with your free spirit. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. When the devil left him, then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Well, on the first Sunday of Lent, I need to confess that if you look for Lent in the Bible, you are not going to find it. It's a practice that we Christians developed. Different traditions point to different moments in time as the origin of this season. But suffice it to say, it emerged in response to a perceived need for us to recenter our discipleship, to draw attention to the costliness of faith, because faith offers us comfort, but it also asks something of us. In short, it asks us to deny ourselves and follow Christ. And if you go looking for clues in the Bible about how to do that, well, there you'll find a whole host of stories and ideas and examples. Noah and his family spent 40 days and 40 nights on the ark while rain flooded down around them, paving the way for God to make tremendous promises. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness learning to trust the Lord. Elijah spent 40 days in the wilderness before hearing the still, small voice of God on the same mountain where Moses spent 40 days listening to God give the law or the Ten Commandments. And then, of course, we have today's story, Jesus' own 40 days in the wilderness, a story that takes place right after his baptism, right before his ministry begins, during which he is tested and tempted 
by the devil. Lent was formed and fashioned from these stories. And so the season of Lent is 40 days, which is really Bible talk for a long enough stretch of time for you to have to wrestle with hard questions. Journeys like that can be difficult, though, and the Bible makes that plain. And so along our way through Lent here at Shandon, we'll turn to the scripture text assigned to these weeks and seek guidance and companionship from characters in the story who accompanied Jesus along his way. Before we get to most of those folks, though, we have to begin with the one whose story is part of the rationale for this whole season anyway, the devil. Now, I don't know what you think about the devil. I'm not even 100% sure what I think about it. But I can tell you this. I believe that evil exists. I believe evil exists in ways that are tangible and real. I believe evil has strength and cunning. I believe evil can get the better of us at any time, but that evil is particularly successful when we are vulnerable. And I believe that one of evil's very best tricks is to make itself sound reasonable. Not extreme or terrible or even questionable, just reasonable. In today's reading from the Gospel of Matthew, all of that is wrapped up in a figure called the devil, or as he's referred to once, the tempter. Now, I have preached on this passage for about 13 years now, and usually the sermon is fairly predictable about how it is a question of identity. If you are the Son of God, if you are. But I wonder if that's not the only way to interpret this story. If it might not always be a question of identity, but one of action. The devil is actually saying, since you are the Son of God, do these things. Which would mean that temptation is less about our identity and more about our behavior. To know who we are is one thing. To act like it is another. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. William Sloan Coffin, longtime pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, he suggests here that the devil is appealing to Jesus's and our commitment to justice. Now, that's a strange thing to think about because I, at least, do not tend to think that the devil cares about justice at all. But his point is interesting. He says it's almost as if the devil were saying, look, Jesus, you are hungry. And so are countless people all over the world. Now, this planet hasn't been treated right, so crops can't grow everywhere they once could. And there's a whole host of issues with how food is distributed. And didn't the prophet promise that justice would roll down like waters? So there are hungry people, Jesus, and you could do something about it right now. 
Are you or are you not the bread of life? Which sounds pretty reasonable. Who can reasonably argue against feeding hungry people? But the one who is indeed the bread of life, the one who will go on to feed 5,000 and countless others, in this moment he says it is written that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because God is about justice, of course God is, and God dreams of the day when every belly is full and every hunger is satisfied, of course God does. But God is not just about justice, which is why the Son of God has to define his mission in terms of more than just bread alone. Justice is good, and God is about justice, but God is about more than justice, too. The same thing happens with the second temptation. Throw yourself down from this high place, the devil says. Let the angels swoop in and rescue you. Imagine, the devil says, imagine how many people might follow you if they understood you to be a shield against all kinds of hurt. Imagine how powerful you would appear if no harm could come your way. And it's not just about you, Jesus. You love these people. Of course you want them to follow you. Of course you would do anything to protect them from harm. And that, too, seems awfully reasonable. Because who could reasonably argue against protecting the ones you love? Because God is about protection. God shelters us under God's wing like a mother hen. And God is about power, power to undo the forces that seek to harm any of God's children. But Jesus says, again it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. God is about protection. God is about powerful protection, but that is not all that God is about. And then similarly with the third temptation, the devil takes Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory, and says, I will give all of this to you if you worship me. And here the devil attacks Jesus' commitment to liberation. Do you see all these people in all those kingdoms so many of them living under some oppressive regime or another, all of them beholden to compromised ways of living. And don't you remember the prophet promised that the Lord will set free all the families of Judah? If they were yours, you could ascend the throne now. <clears throat> you could ascend the throne now, Jesus. They could live according to your rule now. People could live freely right now. And again, it's reasonable. 
Can you reasonably argue against freedom from oppression? God is about liberation, but you know what I'm about to say. That is not all that God is about. You see, all three of these temptations, they seem imminently reasonable. And even more than that, by most measures, they might even sound terribly faithful. Because justice and power and protection and liberation and freedom, they can all be astonishingly good things. The devil doesn't even pretend otherwise. What he places before Jesus is the temptation to seize one of those things and say, this right here, this is what God is all about. But as soon as you say, this thing right here is what God is about, everything else is lost at its expense. To reduce God to being all about one thing That is to reduce God, period. And that is what the devil or the tempter or whatever you want to call him, that's what he wants. When we make God smaller, there's more room for evil to worm its way into this world. The bigger God is, the more room there is under under God's wing for all of us. The smaller God is, the less room there is. And the less room there is, the more we turn against each other, competing for what space is still available. And when we Christians turn against each other, I wonder if you heard about the Asbury Revival. At Asbury University in Kentucky, a regular chapel service started on February 8th, and it didn't stop until this past Friday, February 23rd. It wasn't planned. The service back on the 8th, it drew toward a close, and some students decided they just wanted to keep singing a bit longer. And then over the course of two weeks, tens of thousands of people descended upon this small Christian college to sing and to pray. It was acoustic and unrehearsed, and even those who traveled hours to attend mostly arrived without clear plans for where they would stay. Those in attendance said over and over again, it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now that is likely not to be how this service goes. (laughs) Likely. They said it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but what was decidedly not an outpouring of the Holy Spirit was the commentary all over the internet. Spend a few minutes with Google and you can find predictable critiques from both conservatives and liberals questioning the righteousness of what was happening. Debates erupted around whether it was a real revival or just a charade about whether the belief system of the university itself ought to be taken into consideration, about the merit of praise music, about how long the administration would let this disrupt the academic calendar, about personal versus performative prayer, and on and on and on. 
And I imagine you don't need me to tell you that about 98% of that criticism of a gathering that had no agenda beyond singing and prayer came from self-professing Christians. Now this is just the latest example, but it's by no means the only example of what happens when we get it in our heads that God is only about one thing, or that God can only be praised one way, or that God can only be rightly experienced under one system of beliefs. I don't know anything more about what was going on at Asbury beyond this. Songs were sung, prayers were said, God was praised, and I believe that was pleasing to God. One of the temptations we Christians face is to believe that there is one set of parameters around God. This has significant repercussions in our communal life, but it has significant repercussions in our individual lives too. We run the risk of losing so much.